My dad was proud of me, though. So that <laughs> it was a good day. It was a good day. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. On a beautiful spring day in East Texas, tragedy came to the oil town of New London. This week we talk about the worst school disaster in American history, the New London School Explosion. But first, what's your favorite academic UIL competition event? Um, I participated in several different uh, UIL events, including the math test. Um, but my favorite would be uh, the one-act play. Um, I have a lot of good memories of doing that, and um, it was very enriching in my youth. Hmm. I don't want to brag about my speech and debate time, but uh, I'm going to say, you know, honestly, number sense. It's a insane math test that only insane people do. <laughs> it's like magic tricks with math that nobody cares about. Well, I loved one act play also, and I only did number since in eighth grade, and I didn't do well. But I, my favorite has got to be ready writing, which I won state in Texas in 1993. For uh, it's a writing competition where you sit down and you write extemporaneously on a subject, and I did win the state championship in one A in '93. So, yeah, it's not a there Texas championship barbecue sauce, but it's still pretty pretty good. No. It's not a football championship. Normandy didn't really care. I was the first state champion ever for Normandy High School. But, uh, you know, because it wasn't football, uh, my dad was proud of me, though. So that it was a good day. It was a good day. Uh, in 1855, the town of London, Texas, was founded 120 miles southeast of Dallas in Rusk County. This small area was an agricultural town for many years, producing cotton and corn, as well as watermelons, peaches, and tomatoes. In October 1929, not quite three weeks before Black Monday set off the Great Depression, wildcatter Columbus Dad Joyner and his partner Doc Lloyd succeeded in drilling on the third try the very first successful oil well in East Texas. By the next year, the East Texas field, encompassing 400 square miles, was one of the most lucrative in Texas. Over 1,000 wells were struck and generated thousands of barrels of oil a day, despite the ravages of the Depression striking everywhere else in the United States. Rust County and London boomed. When they sought to incorporate a new post office, they discovered there was already an existing London, Texas, in Central Texas. So like many expedient Texans, they just decided to call the town New London, because so much for original thinking. The Humble Oil and Refining Company relocated 100 families in their headquarters from Corsicana to New London. The community boomed even further as a refinery was opened. This was the very model of the new prosperity in Texas. Residents enjoyed the benefits of being a company town. At the other end of the tract, Arkansas gambler H.L. Hunt purchased lots and he bought out Joyner, founding the Parade Oil Company. This set Hunt on the path to becoming one of the richest men in America. Jobs, housing, electricity, free gas and water, community parks, and new buildings. New London was on the map. The crown jewel of the community, though, was its school. As the community grew in size with young families looking for work, the small ward schools of the area weren't sufficient. In 1932, construction was completed on the New London School, a state-of-the-art steel and concrete structure to provide the education for the community. 
It cost an amazing, for the time, $1 million, which in today's money was around $17.3 million. In honor of local roughnecks, the school mascot was the Wildcat for the Wildcatters of the oil field. They also built the first stadium in the state of Texas to have electric lights for their high school football team. The school was built to accommodate middle and high school from 5th to 12th grades. It was built in the shape of a large letter E. Now, there was enough space in the 30,000-square-foot facility for a basement and a central boiler system, but the district opted to use 72 individual gas heaters located throughout the building. By 1937, in a cost-saving measure, the school board and superintendent canceled the gas contract and instead tapped into what's known as a gas green line, or also a residue line, from H.L. Hunt's Parade Oil. Natural gas we use today, coming from the gas company, has been processed to essentially have controlled concentrations. But back then, you could tap into the waste gas from oil wells to have a free source of natural gas. At the time, all this gas was simply vented or burned off, with oil companies either turning a blind eye or even actively assisting. There was nothing illegal about this, and it was a common practice throughout the energy-rich state. After making the switch in January, there was random complaints of headaches and lethargy by the students and teachers. Uh, these claims went uninvestigated. What they could not know was that the switch connection had been faulty. Untreated natural gas has no odor, color, or taste. It was dangerously accumulating throughout the areas of the building, in the walls, the studs in the frame, and in and under the hardwood floors throughout. Only the gym and the auditorium, which were built on slabs over dirt, was there not enough space for the gas to creep. The afternoon of March 18, 1937, was a normal spring Thursday. The junior high and high school students were busy preparing for an interscholastic meet in nearby Henderson, Texas. Next door in the gymnasium, the PTA was meeting to observe a fifth-grade dance program. Elementary students in their building nearby had already been dismissed, and many of them were walking home or riding buses, which would return to pick up the older students later that day. Everyone was looking forward to a three-day weekend as Superintendent C.W. Shaw intended to cancel class in order to allow the students to attend the meet the next day and support the Wildcats. There were about two dozen of the thousand students that were absent from the entire district, including four boys who decided to play hooky and go to the movies in nearby ARP. There were around 600 students and 40 teachers in the school near the end of the day. At 3.05 p.m., Lemmy Butler, a teacher who was working with 15 of his students in the ag shop, turned on a belt sander. The room he was in was filled with a mixture of natural gas and air. An electric spark from the heavy motor ignited the room. Student John Dial, who was standing next to Butler, said, It was like being in the middle of a flash of lightning. Another student, John Nelson, said he saw what looked like a ball of fire tumbled into the room. The fireball ripped through the workshop and carried the flame to the enclosed space beneath the building, which was over 250 feet long and filled with the fatal fuel mixture. The explosion was beyond description. Observers claimed that the entire building lifted into the air and crashed down. Ralph Carr, working at the Tidewater Oil Company across the street, said, The school just raised up and hung in the air. The explosion was heard four miles away, and the force of the blast threw a two-ton slab of concrete 200 feet away, crushing a car. According to witnesses, a gray cloud of debris, dust, and smoke went up and up and up into the sky. When the building fell, the roof and walls that weren't blown out collapsed down, crashing down in a rain of debris. Concrete, bricks, steel, hardwood floors, school desks, glass, and the bodies of hundreds of children. 
John Nelson scrambled outside the shop, fleeing the fireball, and was knocked down by the force of the blast. When he turned around, he saw his own sister hanging unconscious from a window pane nearby. He rescued her from the rubble and found another wounded boy. On a third trip into the ruin, he found the bodies of Mr. Butler and five of the boys who had been in his workshop. The second floor was especially devastated. An elementary teacher who was supervising children playing on the playground across the street rushed to pull hurt children from the rubble and was almost hit several times by children jumping from the upper stories. The blast effect sent bricks, glass, blackboard slate, and concrete through people sitting at their desks. Students were thrown out of the windows and onto the street. Sixty-five children in a study hall were killed instantly. In another study hall, the teacher and students ducked under their desks and survived. Sisters Helen and Marie Beard were walking out of the building right when the explosion occurred. Helen was thrown through the air and slammed into a car 40 feet away. Marie was knocked unconscious and buried under falling rubble. Amazingly, both girls survived. Other children were found without a scratch on them, possibly killed by shock from the explosion. Parents at the PTA meeting frantically rushed to the scene next door from the gymnasium, and within 15 minutes, the telegraph and telephone lines carried the news. The explosion was heard in the oil field, and workers shut down their rigs to rush to town. They arrived to find the PTA mothers weeping as they dug through the rubble looking for children. Superintendent Shaw had been outside the building and was struck by a flying piece of debris. He was found sobbing at the end of the rubble, saying, quote, Those are my boys and girls in there. The oil crews came with heavy equipment, including trucks, cranes, and acetylene torches. A man was driving nearby delivering peaches from a factory in Jacksonville, and he donated all of his baskets of peaches to the rescue workers. Those baskets were put to use as for 17 hours they were carried into the rubble, filled up, and sifted through, looking for human remains. Within an hour of the explosion, the news had made its way through the state and across the country. President Franklin Roosevelt notified the National Red Cross and put all government agencies at the disposal of Texas Governor James Alred, who'd already heard of the disaster. The governor sent in the Texas Rangers and the Highway Patrol to take charge of the scene. Doctors came from Dallas and Nacogdoches, and New London, in all of its horror, was the epicenter of America. So in addition to the oil workers and the official organizations, uh, teachers from other schools, uh, pastors, priests, businessmen, farmers, other local police and firefighters, even reporters who arrived on the scene were all sent into the rubble to rescue survivors and find bodies. The Salvation Army came in to provide food for the relief effort. In 24 hours, they served over 36,000 sandwiches. World War I veterans from the American Legionnaires chapters in nearby towns showed up before nightfall. Drugstores and pharmacies all over the area emptied their shelves and sent their supplies to New London. The National Guard arrived by 5.30 p.m. in order to prevent looting. Realizing they would be more use in the rescue effort, they gave their rifles to a troop of Boy Scouts who stood guard from that point. As workers pulled the injured and dead from the rubble, floodlights were set up to continue the rescue effort into the rainy evening. The Momont Fire Department sent its light truck, a fire engine equipped with multiple powerful spotlights, to provide light in addition to the football field's lights and the headlights of dozens of cars. What they found would horrify and haunt them the rest of their lives, but also would make these first responders truly believe in miracles. Ike Chalice was completely covered in bricks, but he didn't feel any pain until his head was stepped on by a rescue worker. He had no injuries other than a slightly fractured skull. Rescue workers found ten children hiding in the shelter of a toppled heavy bookcase. 
But in another room, rescue workers found 50 bodies piled against a wall, crushed when the floor had been slammed up into the wall. The dead were laid out in rows in the gym to be identified. Embalmers and morticians from across the state streamed in to help. The wounded were taken to the hospitals in the area. Nearby in Tyler, the brand new Mother Francis Hospital canceled their opening ceremonies to care for incoming victims. More than 100 cots were set up and the entire staff was called in for the day. It wasn't enough. Hospitals in Henderson, Kilgore, Jacksonville, and Overton were all over capacity. Victims were being taken to doctor's offices, churches, and legion halls. Still, the digging continued. After 17 hours, despite exhaustion and heartbreak, and through an early morning's thunderstorm, every bit of rubble was searched. At the end of the day, after seven more bodies were found, the rescue effort finally ended. Many men simply moved on to the cemeteries and started digging graves. The precise number of children and teachers killed on this day is still in dispute. There were around 600 students and teachers in the building that day. 277 bodies were pulled out of the rubble and identified. However, local historians believe that as many as 319 people were killed. Part of this confusion is because nobody knows how many students were actually still at school at the time. Two bodies were never identified or claimed, possibly because parents identified and buried the wrong children. This happened a couple of times. In other cases, and this is grotesque, body parts were found that didn't belong to other corpses. Other bodies may have been in the rubble and hauled away. Additionally, some parents may have found their children, if they were alive, or their bodies, if not, and simply left with them without reporting them found. Others may have just left the area, thinking their children were dead. This was very much a time of transitory workers who had no strong ties to the town other than the work that they were doing. In some cases, the horror may have just been too much to take, and families just pulled up stakes and moved along. The Henderson Daily News reported in their Sunday edition, five of those little victims of this tragedy were members of the distribution department of this newspaper. They would have brought you copy to your home. They won't bring your news this morning. These words cannot be written without tears streaming from the eyes of this writer. The outpouring of grief and sympathy from the state, the country, and indeed the world was swift. Both the president and his wife Eleanor sent personal messages to the people of Russ County and promised to do whatever they could to help them. Messages came from Australia, France, Spain, Argentina, Canada, and even the UK. They came from governments, and they came from individual citizens. The children of the Fukuoka Girls High School in Japan sent a telegram and a scroll that read, quote, We are praying for the repose of the victims' souls. Perhaps the most remarkable artifact from this time is in the London Museum in Russ County. This is a telegram that was sent to President Roosevelt from Adolf Hitler expressing his and the German people's condolences and sympathy to the victims of the tragedy. Within days, the state of Texas and the Federal Bureau of Mines conducted an expert investigation. The results were obvious. The decision by what was then the richest school district in Texas to save $300 a month and use a home-rigged tap of gas pipeline created a time bomb. It was only a matter of time before some spark somewhere would have ignited a catastrophic explosion. Some lawsuits were filed for damages, but most were dismissed for lack of evidence. Clearly, in today's world, the school, the state, and the gas company would have been considered liable for the disaster. However, this was a different time. Most of the parents took an attitude that their children were dead, and the litigation or money wasn't going to bring them back. Further, most of them worked for the oil companies, and their livelihoods depended on the prospects of good employment. Rocking the boat in Depression-era Texas wasn't really in the cards for a lot of these bereaved parents. 
Even Superintendent Shaw, who resigned over the affair and suffered a nervous breakdown, was a victim. His 16-year-old son was also killed in the explosion. That's not to say that the tragedy and the deaths of all those children were in vain. Just a few days before the tragedy, House Bill 1017 had been introduced to the Texas legislature, which would have required the introduction of a malodorant smell to natural gas pumped through pipelines. The Texas Fire Insurance Department had urged this bill's introduction, having seen an alarming number of explosions in homes that were starting to use gas lines for stoves and heaters. The bill passed the House, but it stalled in the Senate, which had more vested connections to the oil and gas industry. As the bill was being debated, the full impact of the horror in New London settled on the state, and it quickly became clear that colorless, odorless, tasteless natural gas was to blame. On March 27, 1937, 5th grader Carolyn Jones, who'd lost her sister Helen along with most of her classmates and friends, addressed a joint session of the legislature. She tearfully spoke to the state's lawmakers, saying, Let me urge you, our lawmaking body, to make laws of safety, so it will not be possible for another explosion of this type to occur in the history of Texas schools. Our daddies and mothers, as well as the teachers, want to know that when we leave our homes in the morning to go to school, that we will come out safe when our lessons are over. The bill, as well as several other fairly sweeping regulatory measures for the gas industry, passed unanimously by May 1937. It was the first bill of its kind and very quickly spread throughout the country and then the world. Today in Texas, we have Utilities Code Section 3, Section 121.251, Subchapter F, Gas Safety, Malodorants. Basically, it's the reason that all natural gas, when it comes out of the pipe, smells awful. All because of this tragedy in New London. For New London itself, life went on. A new school was built near the destroyed building, this time focusing more on safety than architectural beauty. In 1939, a pink granite cenotaph honoring the victims was placed near the site. Within the town itself, the wounds ran deep. Just four years later, World War II would begin, and many of the surviving high schoolers fought and died in that conflict. For the most part, though, few people talked about the tragedy, and the story gradually faded from memory, only surfacing from time to time on milestone anniversaries. However, the story did remain in the memories of at least one outsider. Walter Cronkite was a cub reporter for the AP based out of Dallas during this time. When news reached the wire of the disaster, he immediately set out for New London to cover it. In the years after that terrible day, Cronkite flew combat missions over Germany, covered the 101st Airborne in Holland and the Battle of the Bulge, reported on the Nuremberg war crimes trials, passed judgment on the Vietnam War, and was the man to tell the American public that President Kennedy had been killed in Dallas. Years later, after 50 years as a reporter and broadcaster, he said about the disaster, I did nothing in my studies nor in my life to prepare me for a story of the magnitude of that New London tragedy, nor has any story since that awful day equaled it. Wow. I mean, what can you say? <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a horrible tragedy. And um, growing up, as I did with... Uh, the, the, the history of my hometown, Texas City, and the, the story of the explosion that happened there just uh, 10 years later. Um, I'm, I'm familiar with that, uh, what the effect of that can have on a community and how, how it gets internalized and everybody just kind of, you know, makes that a part of uh, their town. Yeah. You know, we've, we've now covered basically the three biggest disasters in the history of Texas and in, in, 
in these cases in the history of the United States. Uh, the the Galveston hurricane, which killed upwards of 10,000 people, uh, the Texas City disaster, which killed uh, well over six to 800 people, and then this disaster, which killed over 300 people. Uh, they are the worst hurricanes or natural disaster, the worst industrial disaster, and the worst school disaster in American history. So, unfortunately, that's, that's something that Texas also has uh, the the number one of. I think the two parts of this story, as in most of them, are the hindsight you have in a tragedy. So it's, you know, the the irony of Isaac's storm of people were just unaware and this thing sort of hit out of nowhere. But in this case, it was, you know, we're going to save some bucks. We're going to use this free gas. And what's really interesting reading about it was that this was not an uncommon thing at the time. Because if you lived near oil wells, they didn't do anything with the natural. They didn't really capture that much natural gas it was just a byproduct of of uh, you know oil production and so it just vented it off or and so people would just tap into it and use it but uh you know it's it's a i i wish we had an australian on here or european because they would say methane um you know and talk about the dangers of methane um, but no, the the funny thing with the gas is that it's, it doesn't have any of that that smell in it and they've been arguing for a while about doing it but uh, you know, it's just it's a it's a terrible smell. By the way, if anybody has a gas stove in their house and you've turned it on and not had the spark light right away, it's just like ugh, it's just rotten eggs and it's gross. Mm-hmm. You know, it's and, it's it's what Odessa smells like yeah. <laughs> because they have that's where they pump all that gas to, and that's where their refineries yeah. and they they introduce it. They actually introduce it at the wellhead. Yeah. Um, I I do think it's uh, the the silver lining, like you said, is that it, it passed these. You know, help mm-hmm. pass these regulations, and that parallels again these other disasters that we've talked about in the, the history of Texas, including the the hurricane in Galveston and uh, the Texas City explosion. Both of those events also led to um, innovations and uh, reforms in the, in the wake of them that uh, helped improve the situation, so that hopefully a similar situation would not occur again. Um, obviously, after the the hurricane destroyed Galveston. Um, it it uh, pushed people to pay a little more attention to weather forecasting and and really study these things and say, look, these are going to cause a lot of damage, and we need to be able to uh, try and predict them better. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, in and, the case, and how you, in the case of yeah yeah, and how you build cities on the coast as well. Yeah, right. and in the case of the Texas City explosion, of course, it was uh, reforms in regulation and tort law and, and all of that stuff that uh, kind of um, tried to hold these companies accountable for how they were handling their dangerous materials. Yeah. Yeah, so, so this is actually one of the stories that we had on the very first list uh, that we put together for the, the Come and Take It show. Um, but it's been something that we haven't really been able to tackle because we wanted to give it sort of the gravity uh, uh, of the subject. It's well, it is. I mean, this the descriptions of of the the actual the explosion and and the rubble. It, it, you know, this this time of year, you know, we're we're just past the anniversary of nine eleven and watching a lot of a lot of stuff about the World Trade Center and about just the the horror that that was. And you know, this, some of the elements of this story reminded me of that, of digging through the rubble, looking for bodies, of, of you know, children falling from the from the second story uh, to the ground, you know that that uh, and just the suddenness of it, 
that really evoked some of that imagery of 9-11 in this story, kind of, and it kind of made this story a lot more real to me. Well, I think it's like anything else. It brings it home to realize that, mm-hmm. oh, this is something that happened right here. You know, mm-hmm. we've all been to Galveston, or we've all driven, you know, we've all been to a school. And the thought of uh, a school getting blown 20 feet into the air, you know, 20, 30 feet in the air, and then falling down and just seeing, watching the structure collapse. I mean, these are um, horrific events that were just an offshoot of... of of poor circumstances and some, some oversight that people just didn't have at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What do you, but you know, the positive side is, is that you see the fact that like when these disasters happen, that not only does, um, does the city turn on itself do the parents turn and, and support themselves, but Texas, you know, comes alive and supports people. And then not only Texan, but you know, um, America, and then even the world stops to look at these sort of tragedies and, and steps in to, to, you know, lend their support. I mean, even yeah. Hitler said, I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's really, yeah, I, you can I, find that, you can find it, uh, they have an image of, of that uh, telegram, the physical telegram still in the, um, in the museum there, and you can actually find yeah. it on, online as well. Yeah, it's, it's in German. It's actually in... Well, it's, yeah. This is what he spoke, so... Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it's not I, in I French, remember. we know that. Yeah, I remember the 50th anniversary of this event, and uh, and we we talked about um, we were we were talking we were talking in, back in 1987 and talking about oh yeah, there's a telegram from Hitler to to these people uh, on this tragedy. Uh, a little interesting tidbit: uh, we we talked about the light truck earlier, uh, the Beaumont light truck that was sent up from Beaumont. I've actually seen that light truck; it's in the Firemen's Museum in Beaumont. Uh, it's really neat, and there's a picture of Walter Cronkite uh, when he came to speak at uh, a Beaumont in the 1980s, early 80s. And uh, he visited. They 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 brought out the truck, and he sat in it and looked at it. And was like in it, and they have a little note from the newspaper of him remembering the events and remembering that truck. But the fascinating thing about that truck is that it also was sent to Texas City. Uh, in uh, when that explosion occurred. So it was present for the aftermath and the rescue effort of both the New London explosion and the Texas City explosion. Well, I'm going to just make one when it's there's an episode there that I haven't written yet, but um, FDR came to Texas in 1937 uh, on a fishing trip. He brought the presidential yacht down to Port Aransas. And um, while he was there, the Hindenburg explosion happened. And similarly, he wrote a telegram to Hitler from Texas. Like, he was actually physically in Texas when it happened. So, there's a weird Hitler-FDR telegram connection happening here. Texas. Texas and telegrams bringing Hitler and FDR together. <laughs> I know, I know. We almost Tragedy. Get... Tragedy and explosions. Tragedy and explosions. Well, it's just, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not something that you can really make too much light of or too many, you know, it's not, a, it's not one of our happy, jokey episodes. Sorry, guys. No. But it is no. one. Of, it is a hallmark. It's a little, and I think it's probably a lesser-known thing to people that aren't sort of steeped mm-hmm. in history as well. It's something that's it's really been lost on the fact that that this this level of tragedy happened here. Right. Well, and if you think about this story, most of the most of the people that were victims of this, survivors of this, uh, were no more than eighteen years old. They were between twelve and eighteen years old. So. In the nearly 80 years since then, 
these people, there are still people that have living memories of this event from their childhood. So uh, they, they are sadly passing along. Uh, but there is a, a great deal of oral history uh, from these these folks, these survivors who did this, so who experienced this. And there's a number of uh, films, uh, documentaries about the subject that are quite good that have been put together uh, over the years and that are available on the Internet and through uh, the Rusk uh, uh, County Historical Museum, uh, as well as some articles we're going to post about survivors talking about these events. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstaple.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstaple.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. And why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two ends. And I'm Scotticus. You love this show, you love your friends. So tell your friends to love this show and leave a review on iTunes because that really helps us out to find new listeners just like you. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please visit patreon.com slash texaspodcast where you too can become a come-and-take-it Texas Ranger. We hope you'll join us next time and remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway. <laughs>